The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Greatest Stick and Rudder Man Who Ever Lived There aren't many men who could call such great aviators as Orville Wright, Eddie Rickenbacker, Charles Lindbergh, Jimmy Doolittle, Chuck Yeager, Jacqueline Cochran, Neil Armstrong and Yuri Gagarin as their friends. Certainly, someone who was described by Jimmy Doolittle as the greatest stick-and-rudder man who ever lived should need a little introduction. The man is Bob Hoover, a fighter pilot, USAF test pilot and airshow pilot, and it is very fitting that he should have received such a compliment as when Bob was a youngster, Doolittle was his idol. Other tributes to him are equally fine. Chuck Yeager called him the greatest pilot he had ever seen and a magician in the cockpit. Astronaut Wally Shearer described him as the finest aerobatic pilot we've seen in our lifetime. At 15, Hoover spent the money he earned sacking groceries on flying lessons, 15 minutes at a time until he eventually had the eight hours he needed to go solo. Having conquered an early problem with air sickness, he learned to love flying aerobatics, often doing them in aircraft quite unsuited to such manoeuvres. As soon as he turned 18, he joined the Air National Guard as a tail gunner, but was too young to get into the Air Corps Flying School. But a growing involvement with the Second World War gave him the chance. Just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he reported to military flight training. His aerobatic ability was soon recognised and his CO even asked him to perform a display on graduation day. At six foot two inches, Hoover was a tall, lanky pilot, so he was expected to fly bombers or transports rather than try and fit into a tight fighter cockpit. Bob Hoover, however, had different ideas, and found a friend who was going to fighters and not happy with his assignment either. They agreed to switch, a $20 bill was passed to an admin sergeant, and the job was done. This tendency to find a way around authority, or just ignore it completely, was a thread that ran through Bob's life. At Drew Field in Tampa, Florida, Hoover progressed through the AT-6 trainer before flying the P-40 and the P-39 Aerocobra, which he was soon putting through a familiar series of loops, rolls and spins. Although just a sergeant, Bob was soon paced in charge of 67 pilots and enlisted men and sent to England to fly the British Spitfire. His unit was just north of London, and it was there he was given the rank of flight officer, the equivalent of an army warrant officer. The Allied invasion of North Africa soon meant a transfer to Miduna, near Casablanca, but this was a supply depot, and Hoover was put into a pilot replacement pool. His CO announced that a French major was arriving to demonstrate the new Lockheed P-38 Lightning, a twin-engine, twin-boom, single-seat fighter. Hoover was asked to put the aircraft through a few manoeuvres and got airborne, promptly shut down an engine and performed single-engine, low-level aerobatics. As soon as he landed, his colonel publicly reprimanded him and then pulled him into his office. He shook Hoover's hands, saying that he had never seen anything like it in his life. 
Not allowed near the Lightning again, he was allowed to fly the P-40, P-39, Spitfire and Hurricane, doing test flights. He described it as a great learning experience, as he had to handle many emergencies. He nearly died in a Volte Vengeance light attack bomber when, with the gear down and the engine throttled back, fire spewed around the engine cowling. As he tried to land, an explosion blew out the bomb bay doors and the aircraft was engulfed by fire. He told his mechanic to jump, but his harness caught on a machine gun mount, so Hoover inverted and shook him out. Now too low to jump himself, he went to full power and managed to blow the fire out. Shutting off the fuel, he planned to dead stick the aircraft on the field, but on his final approach, the fire restarted. He just managed to set it down in time to jump out and run from the burning aircraft. Hoover was getting frustrated and was keen to get into combat. By now, he was leading flights of aircraft around Africa on delivery trips, flying a B-25. Eventually, his boss said he could transfer once he had checked out somebody else. He promptly grabbed another pilot, put his footlocker in the back of the B-25 Mitchell bomber and took off for Belermo. When he landed, he took out his kit saying, Fellas, you're checked out. He joined the 52nd fighter group, but was given an unusual task. A B-26 Marauder was stuck on a short stretch of beach and needed recovering. It took Hoover and his mechanic a month to prepare the aircraft by ditching everything that they could unbolt, and after laying some 900 feet of steel matting and chicken wire, he successfully got airborne. For this effort, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Relocating to Corsica, Hoover was given the task of flying an old World War I Italian Fiat. Landing en route in Sardinia to refuel, the Italian Air Force tried to surrender to him, but he said that he couldn't accept. All he needed was some fuel and something to eat. By now, Hoover was back into the Spitfire and a flight leader, harassing enemy ships and trains off the coast of Italy and France. His flight was attacked by four powerful Focke-Wulf 190s, and as one of his comrades was hit and burst into flames, he tried to jettison his external tanks, but the mechanism failed, and now outnumbered he was fighting for his life. He headed straight for one of the fighters, fired a burst, and watched billows of smoke stream across the sky. He had his first kill. He hit another, but then a high deflection shot from underneath struck his aircraft, and he felt pain shoot through his body. He got another burst of gunfire off, but his engine exploded, and his aircraft started to burn. A quick call on the radio, but then he had to bail out, his chute only opening a few hundred feet over the water. His life vest was riddled with shrapnel. As he hit the water, the pain from his injuries felt even worse. A flight of Spitfires approached him, but they were engaged by a group of Focke-Wulf 190s, and one was shot down. The rest turned away. After a few hours struggling to stay afloat, Hoover was picked up by an enemy corvette. His legs and privates were peppered with shrapnel, but rather than being treated, he was interrogated. He only ever gave the obligatory name, rank and number, and frequently attempted to escape, resulting in beatings which left him permanently scarred. Suffering from his injuries and refusing to cooperate, he was finally sent to a prison camp. 
En route, his train was bombed by the Allies at a marshalling yard and a boxcar full of prisoners blown up, killing everyone within it. The guards had taken cover and left all their charges vulnerable. His injuries healed and he was determined to escape from Stalag I and tried some 25 times, even after General Eisenhower gave orders for POWs to remain in place as the war was coming to a close. Ignoring those orders, Hoover finally got over the wire and ran. He was lucky to survive contact with Russian forces who were committing atrocities against groups of Germans, but eventually he managed to persuade them that they were American escape prisoners. He came upon a German airfield with some FW-190s and found one, although bullet-riddled, that might still fly. He fired it up and got airborne, only now fully realising that he was heading towards the Allies in an enemy aircraft. Eventually he spotted some windmills, and assuming he was over Holland, he found a field and landed. A ditch took off his landing gear, and as darkness approached, he wandered out towards some trees. Farmers came at him with pitchforks, assuming he was German, but he managed to find a British truck who took him with them. General Eisenhower was correct, Hoover admitted. We would have been safer to stay at the camp. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Keen to get home, Hoover hitched rides, jumped trains and finally managed to stow aboard a ship that he thought might be heading for the US. He was discovered and a suspicious intelligence officer thought he might be a spy putting him in the brig. However, once things were sorted out in London, he was given passage to New York and treated royally. Back in the US, he continued his flying career and was enrolled in the test pilot school. His first assignment was at the Flight Test Division at Bright Field, doing compressibility tests on the P-47 Thunderbolt, as well as captured German and Japanese aircraft. His friend and colleague Lundquist, in a Bell 59 jet, and he got into a forbidden dogfight near the field, and Hoover was promptly grounded. He was still typing operational orders when the CO was changed and his new boss let Bob fly again. It wasn't long before he was up at 42,000 feet in a P-80 jet test aircraft when a turbine failed, forcing him to shut down the engine. Eventually he got to a safe height to bail out when he realised he was near an airfield. He managed to restart the engine and with both fore and aft firelights on, he landed, saving the aircraft. Although he spent four days in hospital recovering from hypothermia and frostbite. Several pilots had died trying to get past the sound barrier, and Bell Aircraft thought that they had the machine that could do the job. A few pilots were in the frame, but after his boss spotted him buzzing a local airfield at low-level inverted, he was dropped from the list. Finally, Hoover's irresponsibility had caught up with him. However, when Chuck Yeager was selected, he immediately asked for Hoover to be his backup pilot. Some people believe that Yeager and Hoover were chosen because they were two of the most junior pilots. I think the rumours may have been right, said Hoover. We were both only 24. The story of Jaeger's flight is well known, and Hoover was always sad he never got the chance to fly the Bell X-1.
Shortly after the historic flight, he was seriously injured when the F-84 Thunder jet he was flying caught fire. Up at 40,000 feet and with a very rudimentary ejector seat, he tried to abandon the aircraft, but the seat failed. In a steep high-speed dive, he bailed out and hit the tail with his legs and his face was slammed into his knees, knocking out teeth and breaking his jaw. After landing, he was dragged painfully across the desert by his parachute, trailing his broken legs behind him. He was in casts and braces for weeks, and by the time he recovered, the X-1 project had been wound up. He left the military in 1948 and joined General Motors' Allison Division as a test pilot. Still only 27, he could now afford to marry and pursue a career. Moving on to North American Aviation at LAX International, he stayed with them for 36 years, testing aircraft and demonstrating them all over the world. The list of aircraft he worked on is legendary. The T-28 Trojan, the FJ-2 Fury, AJ-1 Savage, F-86 Sabre and the F-100 Super Sabre. Eventually, though, he was promoted out of test flying. As his career with North American wound up, he devoted more time to display flying. In his trademark business suit and Panama hat, he would demonstrate the Shrike Commander by shutting down and feathering both engines at 3,500 feet, dive the plane and then pull up into a loop, followed by an eight-point hesitation slow roll. Upon recovery, he'd manoeuvre through 180 degrees before heading towards the runway, landing one wheel at a time. Of interest, the commander wasn't designed for high-stress loads. Hoover served two terms as the president of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, setting the bar high for future presidents. He arranged to have Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins appear at the 1969 annual awards banquet to receive a special award. The Apollo 11 crew had recently returned from their mission to the moon. The list of famous aviators who attended became legendary. He continued to fly and display with his precision aerobatics until the FAA took exception to this elderly pilot and revoked his privileges. Hoover fought back and continued to fly in other countries, but by the time he got back into the air above the US, well into his 70s, he was finding it hard to get insurance cover. Finally, in 2003, he flew his beloved Shrike to the Udvahazy Center at Washington Dulles Airport. There's a lot more that can be said about this remarkable and wonderfully rebellious pilot. I just wish I had the time. Perhaps I should conclude with some of his own words. I was excited about it every morning, he said. I could hardly wait to get up and find out what I'd be flying that day. The Marvelous Bob Hoover. <laughs>